this episode, I'm joined by writer Darren Allen to discuss his book, Ad Radicum, alongside discussions on collapse, modern life, and the self. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paying patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast and keep everything running as it runs off donations and patronage alone, please find links for the Patreon in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Darren Allen, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. We are going to be talking about your 2022 book, so published just last year, Ad Radicum, uh, To the Root, uh, which was published. This is your own publishing press, Expressive Egg Books, right? Yeah, it's, that's me. So this is a book which uh, originally was a lot of essays on widely varying topics, uh, which you then, you say in the preface, you then refined into a, <coughs> a book. So before we jump in with this conversation, which is going to touch on technology, normality, probably mental health, the world uh, writ large at the moment, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how it is, what it is you do and how this book came about. Well, um, I'm, I'm a writer. I'm a radical philosopher and a novelist. And... Um, that's about all I can say about me. I mean, uh, I've got a story, of course, but uh, it's not it's only tangentially re- relevant to to what we're going to be talking about today. So there's not really much point in getting into that. I certainly don't have any qualifications anyway. That's the that's the selling point. None at all? Darren Allen. No. No. I mean, I, I went to university, um, but um, I'm not a specialist or... I don't have any credentials or anything like that. And you do this for a living? No. I mean, I get paid. Uh, but um, for a living, I teach English a couple mm-hmm. of days a week. That's what I've done for most of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that's how I managed to not compromise. I mean, if I was doing this for a living, uh, maybe one day, you know somehow probably through non-fiction uh, probably through fiction mm-hmm. um because that can slip through the back door culturally um but uh you know i was getting paid for what i did as far as non-fiction goes i'd i'd know i'd be doing something wrong if i was getting paid enough to live on anyway mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well i mean that's something I'm, I, i'll note down to uh question you on maybe where these all these non-fiction writers are going wrong then who are Selling masses and masses of books. Uh, but before, <laughs> of course, before we jump into the conversation, um, I have to ask you the Hermetics question. You can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Who do you pick? Um, <clears throat> well, the people that I admire most aren't really thinkers. And I think if I put those into a room, they wouldn't really have much to say to each other um, that was of much interest, I don't think. They'd just be talking about the meal or the wine or whatever it is they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of people like UG Krishnamurti and uh, um, Jesus and uh, um, people like that. I don't think such people are, I mean, they're f- fabulously eloquent, but I don't think they'd have a lot to say to each other. Mm-hmm. So as far as an interesting conversation went between three minds that I'd like to listen to, I'd probably choose my three principal influences, which would be Schopenhauer and um, D.H. Lawrence and Barry Long. 
um, and let them have at it because they were they're all quite fiery folk, um, as well as being endlessly uh, endlessly fascinating. Who's who's Barry Long? Uh, he's a he was an Australian spiritual teacher. Um, in 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 any select you know Buddhism Christianity or. No, not really. I mean, Advaita would be the closest, but that's um, characterised by being outside of tradition. I mean, mm. uh, so-called enlightened men, they're, yeah, they're part of something or other, but they, they're generally distinguished by the fact that they sort of float above it all, don't they, somehow. Mm. You see a connection between these three? Um, yeah. I mean, insofar as all three of them sought to penetrate the veil and did it. I mean, everyone does. I mean, it's easy to say, to to look through to the truth of things, you know. But um, those three, in their own way, in their in three ways that are so important to me, succeeded, as far as I can tell. Um, Schopenhauer, I'd say, intellectually, although he had some terrible flaws, Um such, as did Lawrence. What are Schopenhauer's For flaws? Sure. I can't think of a flaw that Schopenhauer had. <laughs> are you being, uh, are you being facetious? What, are you laying what, into what, the great man? What what flaws? What flaws does Schopenhauer have? Well, he was a bit confused about uh, the will. For example, he confused will with consciousness as one of his principal intellectual flaws. Um, but he was politically very um, reactionary. I mean, at one point he invited. Um, do you know the story? He invited. Yeah, he invited uh, the. I guess what you can. I can't remember the specific armies, but he invited the reactionary side to use his window as a, as a shooting yeah. spot, and he also lent them his glasses. <laughs> right. Yeah, and he yeah. cheered them on. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not down with that, but. As he himself says, well, no, I think it's Voltaire says, but he um, approvingly uh, quotes him that uh, it's the privilege of great minds to um, be able to make great mistakes. So you just you forgive him completely. Same with Lawrence, his, his very conspicuous um, failings. Mm. Um, yeah, so, you know, Schopenhauer intellectually, let's say... Um, Lawrence was more emotional and uh, Barry Long was more just direct and spiritual, I guess you'd have to say. But they all they all ended up, they were all very concerned with getting to the truth of the thing in itself mm. and didn't give up. I hope they, can, they knew that it was there. They experienced the reality of... Um, of experience behind the veil of uh, time and space, and in their own way, they all they expressed it. I mean, Schopenhauer in his extraordinary philosophy, Lawrence in his novels, and uh, Barry Long in his teaching. Has that been your, but, uh, your primary aim in life? Is to get to the truth of things? Yeah, of course. Do you feel you've made any headway? Yeah, <laughs> I'd yeah. Sorry, you were going to say something. Um, no, I've. I mean, <clears throat> myself as uh, the my conscious experience has gone nowhere. I mean, 
as um, as we all know, you, you just end up coming back to where you started. Um, but the self, the system develops and refines itself and becomes um, a better vehicle mentally and emotionally and so on through pain. Mm. I mean, that's mostly just living in the UK. So, <laughs> mm. um, My most painful experiences have all been out of the UK. Oh, no, no, that's, oh, God, no, that's not true. Yeah, the UK is appalling. Mm. Um, but no, of course, I'm talking about personal experiences. Mm. Not mm. Okay, then, well, well, because your, your book, Ad Radicum, was so eclectic uh, and very to the point, um, somewhat reminiscent of Schopenhauer's own sort of ability to not beat around the bush and be very honest about things. And I'd say that about your own writing, that there's a there's an honesty there, which you've already commented on concerning, you know, credentials as these things which pin you down and tie you down and mean you have to have to sort of, okay, well, I'll compromise. Um, and because it's so eclectic, um, I sent you these questions and they're, they're very, they're very open and hopefully will just allow us to, uh, discuss generally, um, mm -hmm. both our thoughts and your own thoughts, mostly on the modern world, really writ large, which I think was the primary focus of the book. And I'm beginning, I guess, with a question concerning what seems to be the, in my own opinion, confused teleology of the modern world, which is happiness, which I think is, uh, something which seems to be beneath the majority of modern conversations or modern purposes, right? We do most, people seem to do most things because they believe at the end of it, it will make them happy. And anything which people do, which doesn't make them happy is understood as a means to perhaps have more happiness later on, or to have some other moment of happiness at some point. Despite all that, no one's happy. Mm, so why, are, that, isn't why aren't we happy? Well, what, what do you mean by happiness? Well, I would mean I would mean the what I assume to be what modern people mean happiness to be. My, myself, I think happiness is actually one of the worst things you can go towards because I'm not entirely sure that happiness exists other than a fleeting symptom that you can only see once it's passed, um, which right. is sort of okay. the tragedy of human life. However, the modern appreciation of happiness generally revolves around other terms such as pleasure, hedonism, rest relaxation i need a break right yeah. this this idea of like uh comfort i think it's probably one of the best words yeah yeah well i would the word i would use would be satisfaction that's what most people understand as uh as what happiness means <clears throat> uh seems to me you can use it to mean um something higher um something less conditional but generally it means for most people, and the reason I don't tend to use it so much myself is is that it's a conditional state of relief or of um, getting something for yourself. So, um, you know, eating is brings you happiness because you're hungry, uh, brings you satisfaction. Uh, fame, sexual um, release, um, all the things that people chase, uh, you know, they they just itch a scratch, scratch an itch, and of course it comes back again because um, conditional pleasures they're transient, aren't they? Like the yeah. self is that is uh, seeking them. So yeah, so you're so everything that you 
pursue is going to make you unhappy when you lose it. That's that's why people are on this constant seesaw. Mm. Um, also, the emotional component has a um, uh, you know a reactive uh, nature. So, you know, people d- desire an up feeling, exc- excitation. The base, the baseline feeling of it is boredom. Mm when the self meets reality, which provides nothing to the self, really. Um, it has this feeling of pain, which you call low-lying feeling of pain, which calls boredom. Then it seeks an up feeling to get out of that boredom. And um, so it starts watching exciting films, um, masturbating, uh, pursuing sex, pursuing whatever it is to get this up feeling. And then, of course, it comes down again. Sometimes it comes down... Very often it comes down just long enough afterwards for you not to be able to connect the two. So it might be like two or three days later. It's just, oh, God, I'm in a bad mood. Why? I don't really know. But, you know, a day or two ago you were wanking or watching some really exciting murderous film or whatever. Um, so that's it. That's why people, why, why happiness is chimerical. And... Um, True happiness, you could call it, or joy, or whatever is unconditional. It's always here, mm. and um, and it's concomitant with pain and fear and all these other things. Mm. So it's, it's it's the self can't perceive it. It, it. it doesn't factor into its objectives. That doesn't mean that seeking satisfaction is wrong. Of course, we've got selves, we've got vehicles that need food and all these things. But unless if you're unconscious then you're just a robot a robotic satisfaction seeker and you're never going to be uh, free it's interesting though i mean that's um you seem to be highly sympathetic with schopenhauer's we've already mentioned schopenhauer's idea that life is simply a pendulum between boredom and suffering is that something you fairly agree with for the self yeah for the yeah. self i mean um people call him a pessimistic thinker but he wasn't at all he was just a little bit confused about the difference between consciousness and self um but what he has to say about the world of self his intense pessimism and negativity about it is it's uh, spot on and you know it's spot on because it's funny you know you must have laughed if you've read him you, you must have found it well this is he's the- got this this is one thing, I, sorry, just to say this notion of Schopenhauer as a pessimist, I think I wonder how much of that is a is a retrospective progr- uh, projection from yeah, where we are. Is, because yeah. when you when you read him, especially firsthand, because I'm not a big fan of secondary, and actually Schopenhauer is pretty easy to read. He's a pretty straightforward guy. He's very mm. honest with himself. I didn't yeah. find him pessimistic. He's, uh, no, right. he's a curmudgeon, but there's <laughs> yeah. all, it's very... Uh, and if you read his biography, this idea of Schopenhauer being the miserable man doesn't really hold much water, to be honest. I think he's yeah. just he's honest with himself, and it goes against uh, modern presuppositions. But the point is, that if you begin with the foundation of modernity, then of course Schopenhauer's vision is so-called vision is going to look pessimistic. But I don't think he is. No, no maybe or yeah. maybe we're just uh, at this moment three pessimists in a room, all sort of ignoring our own misery. Um, if you're, if by modernity you mean more self, then uh, I totally agree with you because uh, he criticizes the activity of the self very well. It's got its limits, but um, 
that's all self can see in when they you know when when ordinary folk read Schopenhauer it just seems like a relentless attack attack upon them mm. because there's nothing else there mm. do you get bored um, no I mean it that question's like saying do I feel fear really um there is fear there is boredom but it doesn't I don't let it move I don't let it infect my brain mm. I find it strange that people get well I don't find it strange that people get bored at least from once again from the presuppositions of modernity it completely makes sense that you get bored because if you assume certain things then you'd be thinking well why do I why do I why can I not just have fun all the time right <laughs> um but when you really sit with just being yeah, how can I be bored of this? I'm, I'm a yeah. conscious being. It's very strange. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, it's so good to do nothing. It's so good, and then moving out of there, there's so many things to do. Really, I mean, do you think most people are between those two states then, and that's the problem? Between nothingness and doing something they're never really doing anything but they're also never really doing nothing because I, I always find the idea quite strange of the idea of having to relax yeah. having to go somewhere right it's the weekend now it's relaxation time so that's not how relaxation that's not how rest works right you should just be able to rest yeah yes i would i'd go with that entirely yeah my one of my things is that people are afraid of they're so afraid of free time they have to fill it up with fun their, their, um, their inability to, again, um, referencing Schopenhauer, they are, they're just left alone with themselves. And um, for a great deal of people out there, that is agonizing. Because it's just, it's because just pain in there. Because the person they're left with is really vapid and boring? No, because it's just painful. Mm. There's just suffering. I mean, the vapidity is, no one is really aware of that. And that's uh, kind of a consequence. Mm. No, no, there's just so much pain in there. Where does that come from? From the past, from, from the self informing itself. Um, people are taught from a very, very, very early age. I mean practically in the womb, we could say, to be themselves without any capacity for sacrifice at all. And so um, and so um, they build up uh, a, a kind of like scar tissue. They build up a load of pain from this this uh, this entity that has invaded them, their selves, essentially. And that scar tissue just gets harder and harder and more. And it's got its own intelligence as well. I mean, your mind and emotions, they they are you. They're not you, but they are you. They are, you know, your vehicle in, the, in existence. And so to perpetuate themselves as an autonomous creature, they think and want and worry and play all these tricks to keep their own momentum going. And so it's not enough to just know this or to know the truth or to or to have fabulous ideas. Um, you have to defeat this entity in a much more intelligent, not intellectual intelligent, um, with much more power than just mere ideas. 
Um, yeah, so that's why the pe people are just carrying around all of this misery and pain from 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 their past, and it just churns away. The mechanism just continually churns away in order to perpetuate itself more and more. Would you Would you agree with someone like um, Uspensky and and of course Gurdjieff? that we are we are taught to indulge in negative emotions and then we're taught to understand misery or we're taught to really taught to be miserable not intellectually no it's not a it's you mean as a not some sort of ideological thing or as a kind of brainwashing i'm not sure it's ideological because i'm not well what isn't ideological but i'm not sure it's brainwashing in the sense that there's some there's any longer a centralized agency that's like sort of you know writing right right you know someone somewhere in some cabal teaching kids to to worry or to be down but the general notion that young people will learn what adults teach them and we are taught to worry we are taught to be anxious we are taught <clears throat> to be even depressed to a certain extent you know certain life events happen and the almost like behaviorist reaction from a lot of adults would be, oh, that must really be making you down and sort of begins the, the cycle. Of course, if we weren't taught all these things, what might our relationship with misery be? Well, I would take issue with the word teach because I totally agree with you and uh, we're on the, um, we have the same feeling about this, I think, but teach is uh, misleading because it implies knowledge and um, I don't think it's knowledge that is the problem mm. initially. Initially, uh, we are, human beings are selfless. Uh, and when the self forms, it's a very soft, malleable, sensitive uh, thing through which uh, infants can pass magically into the experience of the other. Mm -hmm. And if you're raised, if you grow up in a selfless home, that enables a, a form of communication between you and everything, the entire universe, but of course, specifically or primarily through your mother and then your father. Um, and that is corrupted from moment one, mm -hmm. that experience, simply through the parents not, not knowing. Mm -hmm. So there is no real, there is no teaching going on. The, the parents are um insensitive they've got their own scar tissue they're uh, unconscious and they're filling the house with emotions and anxiety and all of these other things that um that uh, corrupt the self and um harden it mm -hmm. and so the child is just instantly placed into a experience of isolation existential isolation and pain mm -hmm. And then the pain builds up, as I say, that, you know, it hardens and it forms a kind of a resistance in order to protect itself. And the um, the self, the self now self-informed self, because it turns in on itself in order to get what it's not getting from the universe anymore, becomes wily and uh, eventually dishonest and stupid and all those other negative things. So then teaching comes into it i'd say then you get adults attempting to impress ideas and beliefs and all those kind of things but that's a second order mm. activity sounds very freudian i wouldn't say that i mean freud uh 
if I remember, I, I don't, it's been a long time since I've, I looked at Freud, but uh, I don't think he talks about sensitivity and consciousness in those, in that way, does he? Well, just the general notion of um, how, how those experiences are carried across to the, you mentioned there, the infant. The, 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 some, there's some, no, perhaps I'll, I'll step back and say, rephrase that and say it sounds psychoanalytical in the sense that you are accepting an unconscious. You're accepting... Something is going yeah. down to a deeper level. Yeah, okay, we can say that. I mean, that was the one thing, of course, that Freud brought to the world is that he he dipped his toe in the, in the darkness. Um, but I don't think he, he understood very much what was going on down there. No, I'm certainly not capable of dealing with it. No, I no, not not as far as again. Like I say, it's been a long time, but I, I don't think so. Mm. So, do you think, in in the sense that we remain with this uh, taught thing once again, using the word teach and taught, as we now understand it, whatever in whatever sense that sort of transference or whatever you want to call it might be, do you think, in the sense that we remain with that and don't prod and poke and see what it is and try to get back to that selfless world that we are, you know, some mystics would say asleep, some would say unconscious, but not in the un in relation to the unconscious we've been talking about. We are in some dazed state that is something not right. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it depends on how much misery and suffering and um, unconscious isolation that uh, um, someone has experienced. There seems to be a certain critical level beyond which it's impossible to recover. I mean, there's always there's always hope, but is there? Oh uh, yeah, exactly. Is there? I don't know. Sometimes I wonder. For some people, um, it seems that at, at any rate, for the vast majority, they're lost for good um, because the self is just so overwhelming. And then, of course, they're born into a world. In which, excuse me, in which um, the self is constantly reinforced. Um, they've got almost no chance of escape as soon as they hit school. If they have money, if they have any success, if they if they're involved with any kind of career and getting anywhere with anything, um, yeah, it's very, 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 very difficult to crawl out. But people do. Mm. Why do people do that? Because something stays alive in them. Somehow the spirit doesn't die, does it? Flame still, they've got enough. I think it was, for, for me personally, the, you know, this sort of, I guess we can loosely or abstractly just entitle it, the, you know, the quest for truth, the quest for people say there must be something more is the usual beginnings of whatever yeah. that, what, you yeah. know, this can't be it is the classic. And, you know, uh, I I felt that myself. But for me, it was a realization that the world that you were talking about there of school, of money, of career, these um, hyper self areas, which will really reinforce the self that you've been talking about. They are all, despite being quantitatively different, more money, more books, <laughs> a faster car, they are still all on the same level. And actually, it's a single repetition and there's the something more is outside of that whole thing. And yeah. uh, is that why it feels like everything is the same? 
Um, no, that's that. I mean, it's connected, but the reason why everything feels the same is because uniqueness is such a grave threat to the system. It works that way with the individual mind. Even uh, for a lot of people, they very rarely have an original thought, but it does occasionally happen. Uh, and if it pops up, or if they encounter it, there's nothing there for it to grow in. Their minds are so system uh, organized one way or another, it just floats away like a dandelion seed. There's nothing there. So the same thing happens in, do you know what I mean? The, it, I do. A, a, yeah. I mean, just to, to bring in the work of Morris Nichol, who was a student of Gurdjieff, but he talks about the idea of um, reels. So the idea that um, each human being has a certain amount of reels, as in certain amount of sort of behavioured responses they give to things, you know, good morning, how are you? You know, not too bad yourself. Yeah, not too bad. Right. And if you when you begin to pay attention to these, there is most people have 10, 20. We, we don't have much of a, of a we don't even have a field. When you throw in, if someone says to you, you know, morning, how are you? If you said something outside of the generic accepted reels, most people will sort of freeze up and then don't yeah. <laughs> know. And they'll go just go back. They'll go, oh, okay. And then, you know, so it's like, like you said, there isn't the ground there to accept difference, um, to yeah. accept. Yeah, but, but it's always strange to me that if you give anything outside, of, like there's a spectrum of accepted responses. Most people stay sort of in the middle and sometimes you can get away with either side and people will go, oh, that's a bit that's a bit too happy or that's a bit too sad. But if you go way too far, it's almost like you've uh, you've input a different language into the computer that it doesn't have the, the software or the hardware or whatever to even understand. It's like, you know. Uh, yeah, and you can, you can actually see the fear in their eyes <laughs> often. It's not, it's not like you have to do anything like really wacky. Exactly. Or anything like that. I mean, just slightly go off piste and there's a panic there. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. Although, on the other hand, I mean, those routines, they're good. I mean, we do need them, right? You can go too far in the other direction, of course, uh, in order to assert. But, yeah, you're right. It's, um, it, it, it depends on why, I think, the, the reason as to why. So it's like if you're if you're being wacky for its own sake, then I think you're entering just into another form of reels that you don't you don't yeah it's a Um, problem that young men have i think you might have had it yourself i know i did when i was in my early 20s that you know it's just like i've just got to do something wild in this experience to break out of this um this prison and uh it's just ego in another another form really well i I think great exercises to sincerely break out of what what you know i mean you use prison there max weber uses the Iron Cage, Gurdjieff calls it a prison. You know, pretty much every every mystic or truth seeker has their own. I, you know, Schopenhauer would go with the Veil of Maya. Um, I, you know, these these ideas of like I just have to do something insane. You enter into another prison, but for yeah. me, the important ones are like I need a name for them. Really, I don't have one yet. But breaking unspoken things which actually literally aren't important. But for some reason, we all have this unspoken, unconscious um, agreement on something, which has somehow become so rigorously symbolized that we don't, it's like we, we're basically 
slaves to something we can't even name, but we all agree on it. And that for me, that's the worst form of slavery. And what, for for example, one one of these would be, why do we speak quietly in an art gallery? And just just an action of why is that guy? You know, why is that person speaking in the normal volume? We don't do that. Why? Uh, we just don't. Is that is that one? I mean, I'm following you. I I agree with you about or these things. But is that one not? That one's not uh, some kind of un- uh, not even unconscious, but some recognition of uh, sacredness. That one mm, could be maybe. But does that does that hold? In, but but uh, okay. Perhaps I could think of a like. I totally down, know down, what you mean. A, down, a, down a nature path, and you sort of think there's no there's no. The, the nature path is well worn and there's nothing to say that you couldn't just veer off and go see that nice tree yeah. over there. But to do it is this like some people, you might get that like internal, you know, that pang of, well, oh, we can do that. Yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those are the really important ones. And the more and more and more of them you, you supposedly break, you realize you're not breaking anything. You're just existing. I mean, and I think, uh, Perhaps, I don't know, I'd like, uh, your thoughts on this would be interesting. I think as the self gets more crystallized, you almost have to baby yourself and spoon feed yourself in terms of what leaps you can make to break it. So the further down the line we get in this crystallization of the self, the little things we need to do to begin breaking it actually do have to be that ridiculously small, you know. It's not really an ascent up a mountain anymore, it's like, you know just well jodiev said that you have to that there's more you may know this one that there's more value in sweeping the floors that should be done than in writing 20 books mm. right yeah um it's in your day-to-day life that um the the um insidious fallout dust of uh habit mm. um that's where you experience it i mean you're not called upon from day to day to um engage in heroic acts of defiance are you i mean it's just not unfortunately how the world works so yeah it's in minute things that you have to even things that no one notices going on in yourself that you have to um ease your way through the these the path that you mentioned Mm. that unconscious following is just something that you do in your mind everywhere and your reactions to everything. Oh, that's good. That's not so good. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, he's, what, what, whatever. That's all a that's that's all an unconscious routine, isn't it? That you mm. learn that you have to, you know, pull back from and allow yourself to freely wander over. Like and dislike are the power, most powerful ones. Yeah, like and dislike. Yeah, you either you either like or dislike. There's no no people don't accept any. How do you feel about the thing? I don't. What? Well, you either <laughs> you either like or dislike it. No, you know, yeah. I think that's why the. Have you read the the, the short story uh, Bartleby the Scrivener? Oh yes, I yeah. have. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, why, that's why that why story is in, just absolutely fantastic. No, I don't. Yeah, pref, pref, prefer not to though. I think is important. Right, it's not like like we were talking about that sort of young man planting some flag. It's like, uh, nah, I just don't really want to. Why? don't know mm. yes that's quite right i hadn't thought it's been a long time since i read that one as well but you're right that is the uh that's the beauty of that story isn't it an absolute refusal to give any kind of human engagement <laughs> in that sense yeah you're right mm. 
So yeah. I, I know you've written about it a lot, so I, I sort of want to take a fairly sharp segue into what role do you think technology plays in what we've spoken about so far? Because I know it's a pretty big, big theme for you. Um, I, I wouldn't say it was, it was, yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, it is. Um, well, technology is autonomous is the main thing about it. It has its own logic, its own rules, its own, if you like, preferences and um, priorities. And um, in a technological system, particularly in an industrial technological system, all of this that we've been talking about becomes multiplied upon itself again and again and again um, because you have to regulate yourself in order to fit in with the machine, with the, with the advanced tool to live in a society that is formed by tools. So eventually you end up with, this is not a particularly original observation, but uh, it's something that's often missed still you end up with a load of machine people. Um, and um, the thing about technology is <clears throat> that, um, as Marshall McLuhan pointed out, is that it numbs you. Mm. Once you have a, a, a tool of sufficient power or complexity to do a task for you, the thing, the part of your body or mind that used to do that thing becomes desensitized, becomes numb. Mm. And so the more tools do things for us, the more the number and number we become. And that is a self-perpetuating problem because you become numb and then you need machines to, well, you need more and more stimulation which you need machines for and eventually you end up like uh it's that samuel butler quote happy cheerful aphids suckling on you know the, the teat of the machine mm. which is what we all are just just bland monkeys now practically is there anything machines don't do that we still have to do ourselves it's soon getting to the point where in any definable sense the answer to that is no mm. um the only thing that we care about as human beings is our indefinable things. And so in that sense, there's a vast number of things that human that machines will never be able to do. But it's soon getting that way. Now with this, uh, you know, the, the surge in AI, soon there'll be nothing that's produced by human minds. It's a strange twist of fate that, you know, you have that whole idea in The Matrix or WALL-E is probably the better film that, that showed it or idiocracy i mean we're fairly close to idiocracy it's a strange twist of fate that we watch those films maybe a few years ago and we'd be critical and we'd laugh but now actually most people might watch them and think yeah that looks like a pretty good way to live yes yes yeah i've 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 came across that um that idea as well recently that there's got to be a lot of people out there watching the matrix thinking well why not why? I, I think that's why Cypher is the most interesting character, right? He's he's like the modern man. Which one's that so one? Cypher is the guy who sells them out for, he sort of says, he sells out the people who are trying to get out of the Matrix, but he says, like he's the guy who understands that the stake is fake, but he just wants to enjoy it for what it is. But I think the most interesting thing is he says, he, he sells out his friends and then he says, 
put me back into the matrix. I don't want to be anyone too big, too famous, but I want to have a lot of money. And the main thing I don't want is I don't want any inclination that of the matrix or bigger ideas. Yeah. Yeah. That's so he, he basically sells out his friends so he can return to a comfortable ignorance, the bliss of like ignorance. And I think that's probably what most people want to do. Right. I would say, um, one way or another, I mean, it's not black and white. I mean, lots, lots and lots and lots of people are utterly horrified by that, um, very cr- it's quite a crude depiction of the Matrix, of course, and mm. uh, in those kind of science fiction films. Um, they're horrified by it, but uh, on on subtler levels, then, yeah. That's, that's what I would say most people want, one way or another. Mm. Yeah. But it's becoming so painful now, the world, um, that more and more people are, uh, I wouldn't go as far as say, whatever waking up or becoming conscious or anything like that but the more pain there is the more the more consciousness there is that's how it Mm. works Mm. and as it becomes more and more painful there will be more and more people who who see things as they are that's it's natural Mm. but it makes me it makes me wonder you know in relation to john michael greer's idea in dark age america where he talks about when things begin to crash down and all the assumptions of what we've been talking about so far end will it be the case that people wake up or will it be the case that there's just a mass suicide you know we can't go on cruises anymore as, as Greer says let's throw the xanax into the punch bowl and have one final farewell you know with led zeppelin playing Probably. in the background for a lot of people yeah i mean it will be horrific it's just going to be going to be awful going to be so 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 bad everywhere it's going to be a the worst nightmare um what is what is the it you're referring to there the collapse Mm. the collapse of civilization the descent which i know greer believes will be very slow or pretty slow slower than i think and i'm sympathetic to his view i mean there's a kind of an emotional appeal to the idea of a dramatic apocalypse um, but that's they, they, that does happen. There are there is such a thing as a fast well, I, descent. I think I'd be I, I'm with you, and reluctantly I'm with you, and it's the opinion I've come to myself over the last year or so that I think Greer may be overlooking the difference in terms of what you know. And he'd probably say to me that I'm committing the modern error and saying that we're so different, right? But I do think modern technologies in terms of their centralization and just how much they uphold in comparison to history is vastly vastly different it's still quantitative but we keep making the error of it's centralized and actually the centralization reduces the skills of everyone who previously you'd have had something centralized but thousands or millions of workers would have all known the skill and then the centralized thing goes down but everyone knows enough to sort of grind down whereas now it's like well, you just have the internet and then you have, I don't know what, 5 billion people relying on it for every, literally everything, you know, but no, but no, like, oh, you're not, you're not, you're not suddenly going to go, oh, the internet's gone down. I'll go make my own internet because I know how to do that. 
and the, and there's multiple technologies that are doing that now so i'm i'm more sympathetic to the idea of if a certain certain technology basically takes a hit it, it's not the world is not no longer structured in a way where it can have this sort of slow buffer effect yeah yeah and there's that do you know how fast um easter island collapsed no I don't either. I know it did, and I know the reasons behind it and uh, and everything. But uh, I don't know how rapid. Well, my I suppose it was a lot rap- more rapid than uh, Rome, for example. I mean, Maya was very quick, wasn't it? I mean, there was just suddenly they were throwing up the barricades and eating each other. I mean, it was precipitous, and it seems that at least with those two cases, there was no escape. Whereas with something like Rome or other civilizations, there's it blends into non-empire. I mean, there's 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 ways out, and as you say, this is so totalizing and so complete that, and so fragile as well. I mean, earlier technologies are much they're much they're not as um, invasive. And I think so, I think as well that one thing to not overlook in Rome is that most people would have had an understanding that the things the things to keep themselves alive, they probably would have been doing anyway or yeah, would have exactly, been around yeah. them or in yeah. close proximity or family members would be doing them. Yeah. And now it's the case, I think, that one of the most important conversations to have with people is the notion of, you know, is it well, is it advancing technology or is it losing skills? I'm like, no, no one has skills. No one has yes. the basic skills. So that's, yeah. you know, that's one of the key problems. Um, and there's skills which have a, a multi-generational learning curve which has since been degraded farming for instance or agriculture or gro- like just growing vegetables yeah it's not something it's not something you can read in a book because of the book unless someone wrote a book about your garden <laughs> it's not something you can learn in a book yeah um yeah and that's connected with num- numbness i mean it's another kind of uh, atrophy of part of the self that's not being used anymore so it just dies off mm. until you just get these kind of stunted creatures um effectively without limbs mm. yeah when do you predict the, the collapse is coming well i think we're in the middle of it i mean it's the it's the uh the early it's the beginning of the end i would say how long is that end going to be who knows i mean greer would say 80 to 100 years would he i probably i, I think, think yeah i think now because if if you sort of mirrored it 300 years yeah i don't know to peak I, yeah i would say that was a fair um long you know outer limit and yeah. then i would say the near limit would be 10 or 15 yeah. the most likely would be 20 um could even be five i mean who knows but yeah we are and the thing now is that <clears throat> most not most people but a lot of people now recognize it one way or another um which is almost evidence in itself that it's mm. that it's happening. I mean, I've always felt this, and I've always been on the Duma um, train, mm. and I've been pretty lonely because of it. But now the carriage is packed. But it, but it's the same in a way. It's the same response. So whether or not it's an yeah, unacknowledgement or an right, acknowledgement, yeah. it's still a yeah. Things are weird, aren't they? Yeah. Shut down. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, no real things are weird, but I still internally believe that they'll actually keep going the way they are. Um, yeah, but, but I'm but, I'm also not sympathetic just to 
quickly throw this in there. Sorry to cut you off. I'm also sympathetic. Uh, sorry, not sympathetic. People are talking about this idea of, oh, doesn't the world feel weird, weird like something's about to happen? And for me, I, I, I want to just say, no, that's the feeling of being human if you don't abide this 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 notion of yes. like an energy or a build-up. No, that's nothing to do with what's going on in the world. You just suddenly don't have enough surrogate yes. placebos and uh, womb, little wombs to crawl into to appease that problem. Beautiful. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, that, that feeling is available at any time. Uncanniness of mm. this is, what is going on here? <laughs> Just, I remember one of my earliest feelings of uh, uh, like that as an adult, and I had it as a kid as well. But my earliest adult feeling that was just simply taking a bus down Oxford Street one day, mm. one Saturday while it was packed, and being on the bottom deck and just looking at everyone. It was the most creepy, terrifying, weird, uh, uncanny, hor- horrific thing. Mm. What is going on here? Mm. And yeah, it's you're you're quite right. It's um. It's one of my favorite favorite pastimes to do something like that. Like I don't I don't really go out into the city much, as you can probably imagine. But if, like if I ever end up in a shopping mall or one of those huge supermarkets, it's almost like um, it's very arrogant. But I don't really care. It's almost like an anthrolo- anthropological study now. So like I think about it. William Gaddis, the writer, he once um, he once told his students to read uh, what's that Dale Carnegie book. How to make friends and influence people. And one of his students read it and said, like, oh, I didn't get anything from it. And he said, no, I didn't mean read it like that. The fact that it's so popular is what you should be reading. Like, what is this telling yes. society? And yes, I think yes. that's what people need. To, one of the great steps to begin looking at the world in that that idea of, like, the collapse sense is, like, what's the supermarket telling you? I don't mean, like, you know, what the going in and buying stuff. We've got to eat. But what, the, you know, oh, wow, there's two aisles dedicated to this. What does this tell you? How do people react with the sumo? Like anthropologically looking at the world we've built will tell you everything you need to know about where it's heading. Yeah, and it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, mm. it's just totally engaging. There's a book called Escape Attempts. Do you know that one? A oh, seminal 80s sociology uh, text. I can't remember who it's by. Um, where they criticise that rightly, that that um, pleasure as... Um, all that's available for people like you and I essentially is that uh, we're so trapped that all we can do is just take ironic poses um, or uh, be fascinated by or um, regard the thing as interesting. Well, I, I, um, I would like to emphasize that in doing that, I don't believe myself to be above it. I still have to go to the supermarket and buy. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm you know, totally I'm with it. Yeah. it. yeah. Yeah, same here. Um, I, I, that's what I end up doing myself. But it's a shame that it's a shame that it's come to this. Really. Yeah. What else can you do though? Well, what it not doesn't necessarily gives me an empirical hope in the sense there's going to be some save like some worldly salvation. But what gives me, uh, I wouldn't even know, uh, perhaps a catharsis is to read some, someone like Spengler or Toynbee and so that, yeah, cycle. You, like, yeah, you happen to be born at this point in the cycle. There you go. Yes. Right. Well, no, no. Uh, you can be miserable about it if you want, but it's your choice to be miserable. Like, 
that that's the way things are. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, some people would say, and I'm not one of them, that, uh, that that's a kind of defeatism, that uh, simply using your God-given uh, life and energy to uh, just be interested in the, in the collapse is a bit of a waste that you should be struggling against it and fighting and reforming and turning <laughs> things around and all that kind of stuff but uh i would say to those people they don't understand that, that there's things bigger than humans that notion of the i'm gonna change it uh, yeah come on yeah i i'm again i'm i'm basically <laughs> with you i some part of me there's um there was a thing that i read did you know that you probably did that um George Orwell and Henry Miller met. No, I didn't know that. that? No. Yeah. Orwell was on his way to Spain mm. to fight, of course, and uh, he stopped off at the uh, where Miller was in uh, Paris because he'd reviewed Tropic of Cancer and Miller was pretty much the only author that he respected in Europe. <laughs> and so he went out of his way to spend the day with him. And... Um, um, and Miller said, what are you doing? I'm going to Spain to fight the fascists. And Miller said, why? What's the point? And, you know, all said, well, as uh, we've got to fight for democracy and we've got to defeat the fascists and so on and so on. And, uh, and yeah, and Miller said, it's just, it's not going to achieve anything. You've already, oh, and Orwell also said, you know, I've, I've, I used to support imperialism, you know, he was in Burma and, uh, he was mm. part of the British Empire, putting um, down the natives. And Miller said, "Look, you've you've done, you've served your penance. Just give up, chill out, brother." And Orwell said, "No, no, I've got to go." And then Miller gives him his coat uh, because Orwell's cold, and Miller's got a better coat, so he gives him coat and he goes. And you know, I was reading about that recently, and I thought, you know, I've got both of those guys in me still. I'm basically. 85% Miller when it mm. comes to fighting fascism in Spain. But I've got some Orwell in me, you know. I mean, there are baddies. You can change the world. There are people that are responsible. They do need to be uh, um, held to account some way or another. I just don't care that much, really, in the I end. I think this is and what I, I have to admit is that I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah. It, it, it doesn't feel like apathy, though. It doesn't feel like oh, like I'd just lay down and die, but um, I don't care about it in the sense that I don't know. I don't care about romantic comedy films, right? It's like it's just not something that's it doesn't int it doesn't interest me because I don't know. Maybe we're just trying to self justify our own. Yeah, could be. Yeah, I guess so, but I don't know. But now I'm thinking, what's a great romantic comedy, I Yeah. Yeah. Just trying to think of a, a masterpiece of I do quite like them, but none, none, are, coming, none um, are coming to mind. Forgetting Sarah Marshall is one that's quite oh, God, no, no. No? That's got some great moments in, for sure. But... Yeah. <laughs> no, um... yeah, get, get back to you on that one. <laughs> well, who did Like Notting Hill? Oh, no. My yeah. God, that's appalling. It's so, um, that 
who's the writer that curtis richard curtis, richard curtis. Do you not like richard curtis? no no he gives me the creeps all that posh smug um upper class bollocks yeah mm. um nah can't think <laughs> they're out they're out there though <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah mm. um well, I think, yeah, well, my 15% Orwell is more local and individual, like certain principles that sometimes I, you know, I feel like, why are you sticking to this so almost like stoically? But there's certain things that you just think, no, 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 this, I think it's important to, you know, Ernst Jünger talks about the anarch and the idea of being a sovereign individual. And I, you know, you can't be fully sovereign, but sometimes there is this, these certain things you just think, no. You know, I'll let the world have its have its way, but there's these little things that I'll just suddenly almost burn myself out for defending. Yeah. And I don't really yeah. know. Sometimes I don't even know why, but it's just a matter of, no, I've decided that's the principle. And even if it basically um, is a neg- net negative on my life, something in defending that principle is important. And this happened to me recently, actually. I accidentally reversed my car into someone else's car in the middle of the night with no one else around and i could have very easily driven off and just left the damage on the car but i did i did go find the guy and it cost me a fair amount of money and i did you know like most of me is thinking like what because you know, I, I don't agree with dents and cars it's like it's a piece of sheet metal over an engine so i don't i, I really don't care but in that is something that i think is really important in terms of without that honesty nothing can like nothing none of the stuff that i rely on right now could have been built without that notion of yeah by the way i damaged your goods yeah so the, yeah but uh, i don't yeah. know i don't know where we're going with this but uh... <laughs> no yeah we'll take a detour through romantic comedy to uh pranks yeah. oh there you go there's a romantic comedy for you, you harold and Maud, yeah harold and Maud is one of my favorite films i was trying to find well, a seg- i was trying to find a segue to Get it in. Who is it? Um, the director, uh, Harold, Harold Ashby. Harold Ashby. Yeah, he's, my, he's one of my favourites. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. a romantic comedy. That's a bit different, though, isn't it? It's romance and it's funny. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I'm not sure where to go from here. We've just because we've we've ground we've quickly ground it down to how we both feel about things. So, like any entry of any empirical stuff now seems almost uh like silly to bring in if we suddenly start talking about other things it just gets subsumed into this uh, strange apathy we both have i don't know i guess what okay here's a question maybe. well towards those you go on yeah yeah here's a question to just maybe it would encapsulate what it is we've been talking about what it is what is it to be normal <laughs> uh again i suppose it's that's just the same as happiness right i mean there's uh it's you can define it in terms of the self or in terms of consciousness or unself again. You can define normal as in just like everybody else, the normality that um, it, the system demands from us. Mm. Um, or you can define it as hum- humanness, as being, as being, um, of having the same kind of self as other people as having some kind of link through yourself to other people. I mean, being English, for example, is something I'm thinking about at the moment. Um, do you think I'm you're, reading... do, do, do you believe you're English? Yeah. 
I do, yeah. And I, in, I, in like a national sense? In a cultural, natural cultural sense. Yeah. Do you, do you think I believe that... I've got more in common with Shakespeare than I do with uh, yeah. any Frenchman my age at the moment, for example, um, in some very important way. Mm. And, um, and I love Englishness and I love English uh, culture and I love English nature. I'm not sure I'd like to live here <laughs> because of all the problems here. And mm. physically, I'm um, more comfortable in dry heat, of which there's nothing, none of that here. But um, to be an ordinary Englishman mm. now, to mm. say that to someone, I'm an ordinary Englishman, would is this horrible thing. Mm. Why would you admit to being an ordinary Englishman? It's appalling. I'd say it's on its um, way out, though. And also, it's not, yes, it's being those cult, those notions of culture. Yeah. Everything, everything's homogenized, so there won't, That's right. there won't be those things. Also, yeah, the barriers are breaking down, and there's all kinds of it's being all cultures are being attacked in that mm -hmm. way. Yeah, you're right. Um, but there's also a sense of there's also a good sense. There was there's also um, the possibility of having a group of English people together. Um, manifesting together an, an ordinary Englishness mm. that's that's good. That's something we've all got in common. What we would call as an as fellow Englishmen, ordinary conversation, ordinary food, or nothing exceptional, nothing better than any other culture. Um, so there you go. That would be another way I think of thinking of of the two kinds. The food, of, the food uh, certainly isn't better than any other culture. I don't. I. I there's no way it's better than other culture in lots of ways, but the food here is great. What in Eng in England? You're in the yeah. same England as me. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Today I had a uh, beef stew um, <laughs> with homemade bread, uh, both traditional English recipes. Hmm. Um, Tomorrow I'll have um, beef and potatoes, and then I'll have uh, liver and <laughs> yeah. potatoes. Uh, might have a pie, and uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a there's a there is a, a pretty narrow range here. There's no doubt. Mm. And um, if I had to choose one cuisine for the rest of my life, I'd probably go for something broader. But mm. but English food's good. Yeah, the thing about it is, of course, is that you can only find it in the home of somebody who can cook well. Mm. Yeah, but in in any case, you see you you see my point. What are we replacing oh. all those cultures with? Just a soup, the same thing that we're replacing uh, everything with the gender, the same thing we're replacing gender with, just a, a kind of nothingness. Um, it's kind of a it's kind of a ghastly replica of a middle class man. I mean, mm. not so long ago, the typical manager would be somebody who was comfortable in any um, country, any setting, any industry, any uh, profession. He kind of glide around them all because he's nobody. Mm. And even that, I think, is on its way out. That strut, that even the classes are starting to dissolve mm. to some degree because they're not um they're not needed anymore. Like institutions are not needed. Uh but that kind of thing, mm. a, a version of that, a horrific, monstrous version of that is what what we're slowly turning into. Um 
manifest as culture, manifest as gender, manifest even facially and physically. Faces are becoming the same. I'm glad I'm. I'm glad I'm not the only one who's noticed this because I thought, oh, you're actually going insane. But it's yeah. all. It's almost like a. I don't know everything's pale, sort of thumb walking around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These podgy, the podgy, thumb, the thumb people. Yeah, thumbs. They're just. It's just a world of thumbs. Thumbs which look <laughs> down at the little rectangles and then scroll them. Yeah, um, but it's quite deep because I, you know, I, I think that that not just first of all it's the skin, the the muscle structure. Yeah. that follows character, follows personality and starts to manifest this lack of distinctiveness. Mm. And then I believe bones follow the whole until you finally get, and this can happen very early on, that's why six, seven, eight-year-olds can look like total morons, even two-year-olds. Um, the whole body just manifests this mask mm. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. The I think I was reading Emmanuel Swedenberg recently, and he talks about actually that earlier on. So he might have changed this later on. He wrote a ton, but the distinction between the inner and outer man isn't really what people think it is because they both are. Because yes, you do have an inner. You have an in for him. You do have an internal and an external, but the internal is always becoming the external. So to the extent that. You could say, oh, this idea of deep down is sort of false because what is the internal, what you allow to manifest or to project out into the world, whether you get really angry, you get really negative, that becomes the external. So there, is, there isn't there is really the distinction. And I, I would I would honestly yeah. be in agreement with you that, that the, the internal life is the sculptor of the physiognomy of the, how you could say abstractly the aura of someone, and I mean literally, but the what someone is bringing with them as they enter a room, and if everything the internal life has is a homogenous soup, then it follows that everyone's externalities will also be a homogenous soup. Yeah, that we've come back to uh, Schopenhauer in a way because via Wittgenstein, that was both of their observations. I mean, Schopenhauer was just part of the whole 19th century, um, not even a belief, it was just a knowledge that physiognomy was um, a manifest reality of character. Uh, all 19th century authors, as far as I know, are meticulously describe uh, appearance mm. in a way that no one does anymore. Um, what are you describing? Sorry? What would you be describing? Especially in England. <laughs> right yeah exactly a sea um, of gammon yeah but that but you know distinctive characters even then when they're supposedly in the in the book they very rarely get any kind of treatment as a physical entity as something that is um yeah manifesting character the inner and the, the outer are no longer considered to be one there is no inner and the outer is um, just whatever you want it to be, qualitatively. This is yeah. an extremely fragmented conversation, but uh, is there anything you'd like to add about your own work and your book that, uh, well, I would say we haven't touched on, but I'm not sure entirely what we have touched on in a way. 
Well, I wouldn't call it fragmented. Uh, eclectic, I think, is probably uh, the word that we started off with to describe the book that uh, you've uh, um, that you've read of mine. We use it as a springboard, so uh, I think it's been a pretty reasonable mirror of uh, some of the concerns there. And the thing about eclecticism is that um, you know the truth is um, as broad as it is deep. And um, anyone who is interested in the truth naturally finds it manifesting mm. everywhere they go. And so they've got insights into everything that happens to them. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's suspicious to read an author that only writes about technology, for example, or only writes about, uh, you know, poverty or uh, psychology or mm. if you're if you're if if. If you're interested in the truth, why are you not writing about other things? Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Uh, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm. Perhaps I'm not necessarily suspicious, but I'm. It makes me sort of a bit exasperated when you you find a writer who says everything is to do with this. So, well, you're smart enough to know it isn't. Um, you know, and also, you find people who find their philosopher, and then the rest of their life is that philosopher is the filter and i think that is equally just as damaging but of course you know it takes a long time to get to know things so it, it's it could be forgiven you know yeah. you, you 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 only have a certain amount of time so you can't become a master of everything so just read schopenhauer and <laughs> that's a good start i mean he was pretty broad hmm? yeah and the best stuff yeah. was found in his broad writing i think yeah i mean the first volume of world as well as uh will and representation the first volume of his major work is is uh, it's pretty rep repetitive, really. That's representation. Mm. That's representation. Okay, I got it. Shopping now. Yeah. yeah, maybe. Yeah. Whereabouts can we find your your work? Um, I'm I've got a website, expressiveegg.org, and uh, I'm publishing on a Substack at the moment, mm. expressiveegg.substack.com, mm. and in all of the usual online bookshops there i am in my digital form what does that name where does that name come from expressive egg comes from a mad cripple that i knew throwing himself drunkenly down in front of me uh, when i was about 20 and screaming it out of maximum volume and uh i uh just held on to it as something that was well, poetic just, and he screamed the words expressive egg i am the expressive egg and passed out what a way to and... go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I'll be sure to put the, those links in the description below. But uh, Darren Allen. Thank you, James. It's been a great conversation. Thanks very much. It really has. Thank you. Thank you.